Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to our Shattered Lives crime podcast special on the trial of Jerry the Monk Hutch. Jerry Hutch is charged with the murder of David Byrne at Dublin's Regency Hotel on the 5th of February 2016. Two men, Jason Bonney and Paul Murphy, are also before the Special Criminal Court, charged with facilitating the murder of David Byrne. All three men have pleaded not guilty. Joined by Mick O'Toole, crime correspondent with The Star, he was in court today. Uh, Mick, it was another dramatic day in the Special Criminal Court. It, it was Yes, Paul, hello. It was extremely dramatic, and I have to say, uh, very interesting, but also ex- from a journalistic perspective, it was extremely difficult, I would say, in my long status as a journalist it was one of the most technically difficult days i've had just to explain we we as you you'll know we listened to the recording that the state alleges is between jerry hutch and jonathan dowdall which the nsu uh, which came from an nsu bug that we planted in jonathan dowdall's car on the 7th of march 2016 so now there there are 10 hours of this we actually heard today that the the guards actually recorded 420 hours all in, but there's a 10 hour, 10 hours of the of the two of them allegedly together. So it was being played in court. So we were having to write write it down, listen and what look at the transcript which was displayed in the screens. So I have to say it was a complete not a nightmare, but it was worth it just to hear the the the, the whole conversations which again the state alleged between the two men. But I think Paul maybe just. For, for context and bring, to bring us up to date, you would be more aware than I was that yesterday there was some significant evidence, the latest twist about the Garda tracking device that had been fitted to Mr. Dowdall's car as well as the uh, surveillance device. Yeah, so as you may remember last week there was a lot of drama in relation to uh, information from the tracking device uh, had been destroyed by the Gardaí, which was a massive revelation. The defence wanted access to this data, uh, but it turned out that this had been destroyed uh, by by the, the former head of the NSU, Kieran Hoey, Detective Inspector Kieran Hoey. Uh, and he had told the court last week that all of the data relating to this tracking device had been destroyed, and he had done so under the provisions of the Surveillance Act 2009. Um, so it came to Monday and this was going to be the beginning of what we thought were going to be the tapes uh, that were going to be heard. But And we were also going to hear evidence from Assistant Commissioner of Crime and Security, Orla McPartland. So she was going to contextualise uh, her rubber stamping of that decision to destroy those records. But it turned out early in that hearing on Monday morning that in actual fact those records had been found. Uh, I think the words of of Brendan Gretton, uh, the senior counsel for Mr. Hutch, he said, what was lost has now been found. 
um, which is extraordinary. So there was all this drama last week in relation to this data uh, be, it being destroyed. And, and now all of a sudden it's been found on a computer. The guards had worked overtime over the course of the, the days following the trial and the weekend. And they uh, subsequently found on a computer access to the, the data in relation to this, this tracking device that was placed on Jonathan Dowdall's vehicle. So that was going to be an issue of major contention, but we seem to have gotten over that now, gotten over that hump. We also heard then from the assistant commissioner, she did actually uh, take the stand on, on Monday and uh, basically explained her reasoning behind her decision. She said that she, she absolutely would not have signed off on the destruction of the records um, if she had the slightest inkling that the material was required in any trial um, and she would have ordered its, its retention instead. So we had heard previously last week um, that the detective inspector who de- who had deleted this information didn't think that it was going to be used in any prosecution in any trial uh, and he destroyed those records at the beginning of this year while Jerry Hutch was in fact actually charged with murder so there's a lot of questions to be asked here uh, it's not for us really to express our opinion but I would say that I mean it was a shocker that that information had been destroyed. It caused a massive reaction uh, last week. And, and now to find out that th- that this data has actually been found and retained is extraordinary. Yeah, so some of the commentary from outside the case was that this could possibly lead to the case collapsing. So it obviously you can see, I think it was detectives from the Garda National Cybercrime Unit who, or Bureau who did as you say, they worked overtime over the weekend and found, I think there were seven computers that were slated to be destroyed and the what they said was a working copy of the logs were found on the third one. So it was, we don't know how either were, how close they were be, to being destroyed, but it was, you know, I suppose it was it, it was down to the wire. One thing I, I found very interesting in Commissioner McPartland's evidence, she said that when she was, she gave the rubber stamp of the order for the, the records to be expunged, there were 87 different surveillance or tracker logs that were expunged at the same time. And she took a sample of three to see if everything was okay. But she did ask, you know, are there any problems with this? And she, assured there, and she was assured there weren't any with any of the 87. Yeah, I mean, again, it's a fascinating insight into the workings of, of, of the National Surveillance Unit and, and Crime and Security in Agarda Shikana. As I said last week, I think in one of our other podcast episodes, we, the public, are, are getting a huge, massive insight into how a particular, very secretive branch of Agarda Shikana works uh, for the first time, really. So, uh, you know, perhaps that will be scrutinized. It's not for us to scrutinize how they work. Um, nonetheless, we've come to a point now in the trial where where 10 hours of tapes are going to be heard. And you sat in for the beginning of that today, Mick. Um, and it must have been something else to, to, to sit there and listen uh, to this alleged conversation between Jonathan Dowdall and Jerry Hutch. Yes. So a bit of bit of housekeeping first. We said at the start, we need to say it again because there's going to be a, a, a narrative in what I'm talking about because we have all the, you know, I, we took notes of what was said. So there is, there are two voices and, you know, they're very clear. I mean, that's the one thing that struck me. I thought, my good God, the, 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 the surveillance device that the NSU have is really top notch because they were driving up the road. I mean, I'm even sitting, and if I'm thinking, you know, I'm sitting in a car and we're driving up from Dublin to Belfast, there'd be a bit of humming in the background. It was crystal clear. So it is two men, two Dublin men. Now, it's not for us to say who it is or isn't. The state says that the two people in this conversation were Jerry Hutch and Jonathan Dowdell. And uh, there's a guard of Michelle, Michelle Purcell, when she was given a commentary or a transcript 
to the recording, she said that they were that the, 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 the initialisms, I suppose, of the two people that were down on the transcript were G H and J D. So they're, they're so they're saying that it's Jonathan Jonathan Dowdle and Jerry Hutch. That's not for us to say, but we're just going to go from this basis that it, the state alleges this. So just for the for ease of listeners, because it would be very cumbersome saying every sentence that's alleged that that was Jerry Hutch and that's alleged Jonathan Dowdle. So we're going to say from now that the state's case is it's Jonathan Dowdle and Jerry Hutch in that conversation. And it's important just to contextualise as well when this uh, conversation allegedly took place. It was on the 7th of March, am I right? Yes, the 7th of March. So the, the, you will, will remember that the, the Regency happened on the 5th of February. So it's just over a month after the murder of David Byrne for which Jerry Hutchins charged. It's also le- just less than a month from the murder of Eddie Hutch. Jerry Hutch's brother. He was a 58-year-old man and he was shot. So the regency happened on the Friday and Eddie Hutch, uh, who would have been his older brother, was murdered on the Monday at around 8 o'clock. So there, there is some... I'm, I'm given contextualising this because we may touch, because there was a reference to Neddy, who, which was what Eddie Hutch was popularly called. So yes, yeah, so it did start... I, you know, I, I took notes, I tried as best as I could to type them up as it was going. I think I typed about 4,000 words, so it was a huge amount. When you think about it, driving from Dublin to Belfast, it's a good hour and a half, two-hour journey, and it was up and down, and they were in the north as well. I know the, the, the whole context there. So, you know, and, and it was like a typical two men having a conversation. They could be talking about politics one minute, they could be talking about football the next, or whatever, you know, and they talk about big issues and they talk about small issues but just some of the main points from the morning's evidence which I I found was very 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 interesting Uh, the first big thing for me was they started talking about the Regency Uh, he said it he Jerry the man that Jerry Hutch uh, the man the state says was Jerry Hutch that's the last time I'm going to say that uh, said he flew into Dublin airport sometime before the uh this conversation and he said he was approached by two detectives from the NBCI so the NBCI the guard is elite uh, investigative unit they are usually sent to every district district officers in other words superintendents are in charge of murder so for example the Regency investigation is being led by Sandry Garda Station but the NBCI come in as sort of support and help and, and, you know, extra bodies and they're the elite investigators. So they were running and, and he said shortly after, shortly before this conversation, he flew in to Dublin airport when he was approached by two uh, detectives from the NBC and they said they, need, they needed him to account for his whereabouts and his movements on the day of the Regency. Now, one thing he said was about that was, look, if I say where I was and if I say who I was with, that brings other people into it and that could get them in to, to uh, serious bother. So you can see that he was quite aware. Another thing that he said later on, but I'll bring this in now, he was talking about generally talking to Gardy because he was. Uh, they were talking about another brother, Patsy, who's not before the courts and hasn't got any charges against him. But they were talking about how Patsy was uh, being interviewed by Gardy and he was saying various things about how he was in Buckingham Village uh, and why, and he was interviewed about that. And he was given his rationale for being there. He doesn't live there, but he said he, he had to go there. And one thing that Jerry Hutch said, essentially, uh, he gave advice to anybody being questioned by Gardy, and he just said, tell them nothing. Don't open any doors, just say completely silent. So I thought that was really interesting. You could see Jerry Hutch's mindset about, if you get, you know, it's essentially what he was saying was, you give the guards an inch, you give them a mile. So, you know, say nothing. And, you know, 
you and I, journalistically, we would probably have that same attitude because you and I have been questioned loads of times by guards and our attitude very much is no comment. And it's probably the best protection for journalists and maybe for suspects as well. Uh, something that's just clear from, uh, obviously I wasn't in court today, but just in reading uh, the reports on it, um, it appears that, uh, that this man alleged to be Jerry Hutch was quite critical of the guards as well um, and, and made a couple of uh, crass remarks in relation to how the guards carry, have carried out their investigation uh, in relation to the Regency Hotel already uh, to date. And at that point, it was only a month in. Yeah. So he basically said that the guards were running around like headless chickens and that he said he believed that the guardie did not know who the six men in the Regency hit team were. Now, that's very important. So we know that the Regency was carried out by a six-strong team. There were two, uh, a man, Flatcap, who we now know as Kevin Murray, who is deceased, another man who was dressed as a woman, and they were photographed running out of the Regency. But there were other, other men, including three men, who were dressed up as fake ERU officers who hold the SWAT team with the famous Kalashnikov-style rifles. So uh, Mr. Hodge came off uh, with a, a few comfort, uh, interesting things. He said basically the guards didn't have a clue. They didn't know who the six men in the Regency team were. And he said that there was speculation in our part in the media. As, uh, uh, but he said, which was really interesting, he said not only did the guardie know, not know who the six people involved in it, so the six strong gang, because there was a, a getaway driver, so there were three ERU men, man and a woman, man and a man dressed as a woman, and then there had to be a getaway driver, all all in the, the, the Ford Transit van, which we know was used by the gang. But not only did he say that the guards didn't know who the six people were, he said that members of the gang didn't know. So in other words, there could have been, you know, my analysis would be he would be referring to the three men who were ballied up, who were dressed up as the RU men, because they're the only ones who had their identities hidden. And he basically said, People who were centrally involved in this operation, so the six men, some of them don't know who the others were. So that was really interesting because it showed uh, how tight the security was in this whole operation. And it was almost on a paramilitary level because that's one thing the IRA would do. They call them active service units and sell operations so that you know they, they break things down so that security is very, very tight. It's on a need-to-know basis and only certain people know the whole story. So you know that does seem to be what Mr. Hutch was getting at there. Mm. There was also, we got uh, a tease of this in the opening of the case, but uh, there was more context to it today. There was mention of the three yokes uh, in the conversation between the two of them. Yes, so the state alleges that the three yokes are the three Kalashnikov-style rifles that were used by the gang to carry out the murder of David Byrne. We know that David Byrne was, although shots were fired from from two pistols, uh, it was actually it was David Byrne was shot dead and he suffered catastrophic injuries from the Kalashnikov. And we know that uh, on the 9th of March that the Kalashnikov-style rifles that were used by the, the gang were seized from a man called Shane Rowan in Slane in County Meath. No, he, so Jerry Hutch was talking about yokes and this, as I say, the state alleges that when he says yokes, he's referring to these Kalashnikovs. So he was talking about bringing them back up to the north are bringing them up to the north and giving it, giving them as a present to dissident Republicans. But Jerry Hutch raised the point. He said, "Wait, look, this happens we, in a month, in a year's time. There could be two RU, he called them RUC. There could be two PSNI officers shot dead, and the guns could be uh, with these weapons, and they could be forensically tied back to the agency. So he thought that would be a major problem. But I just thought it was very interesting. It was there was nothing explicit. Yokes is a classic Dublin term, but." You know, there was significant import in that conversation, I thought.
And he also said how dangerous it was. To, I think John, Jonathan Dowdle said how dangerous it was to move them. And he was right because two days after Jonathan Dowdle spoke about how da- spoke about how dangerous it was to move these yokes, they were seized by the ERU and Special Detective Unit in Slane. So, you know, uh, they were right. Yeah, I mean, there's a quote here from Jerry Hutch. Uh, 12 months time, there's two RUC men dead there and them things are ballistically traced. Uh and and then Dowdall allegedly says they're going to blame them on the Regency and any smart copper will be saying it's a joint yoke. Yes. So in other words, when he says, when he meant a joint yoke, he meant an, a, a joint operation between distant Republicans, the real IRA, the new IRA, whatever you want to call it, and the Hutch organised crime gang. So again, that does, that is interesting and it does show a, a level of awareness. But, they, but Jerry Hutch did raise the, the whole prospect. Obviously, as you know, the, the the guns that were seized by Guardian Slain were forensically examined and they were connected to the Regency. So what Mr. Hutch appears to be saying there is if they were used in an attack up north, then that would be a whole world of trouble for 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 people because there'd be a lot more murders and you know, it's a it's a very it's a very heavy thing. And it's interesting that as we've been saying, that this alleged conversation about the allegedly the, the weapons was happening on the seventh of March. We know that two days later those weapons were recovered. Um, in the vehicle driven by Shane Rowan, um, so on the 9th of March. Yes, so that shows a, a, a level of safety awareness if this conversation is accepted by the court. It's a level of safety awareness, you know, and a level of, you know, what could happen if we did bring, bring up these yokes and give them to the distant Republicans up north. So you can see there's a, a level of sort of strategic thinking there, uh, which I thought was was very interesting. Yeah, and then there was also uh, a conversation about Daniel Kinahan, which was fascinating. Now, this really, really struck out to me. What, what I thought was really interesting was, look, Jerry Hutch's brother has just been shot dead, but it's really hard to explain, but you could hear it in the tone of his voice that, you know, it's. I wonder is it too... I'm not going to say concern, but it's possible that there was some sort of empathy for what Daniel Kinahan had been going through. So just to explain, he did say, look, you know, he looked as he looked. He used the word heap. He said he said Daniel Kennan looked in, in a heap. Remember, Daniel Kennan was photographed by several media outlets after the Regency, even at the, the funeral, for example, of of David Byrne. So he looked. He did, as according to Jerry Hutch, he looked in a heap, and he did contextualize. He said, "Well, you know what? I'd be in a heap. I'd be like that if I was in the Regency, and somebody had come at me with a Kalashnikov and had missed me by inches." And how would you? How could you basically go over that? And we do know that uh, Daniel Hutch was at the Regency. We do know that Dan, sorry, Daniel Kennan was at the Regency. We do know he was the top target. We do know that the two gunmen, uh, the pistol packing men, not the Kalashnikov men, tried to kill him. And we, we, I mean, we broke this in the Star that he was Daniel Kennan was saved by his bodyguards. One of his bodyguards saw the man dressed as Owen come towards him with a gun, threw a bottle of water at the man and bustled Cainahan out. So they did, they missed him by inches, and you can see that Jerry Hutch seems to be saying that Daniel Cainahan has been really affected by that. Yeah, I mean, he says he'd be in an awful way. He, 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 I'd say he's totally disturbed. He says, um, as you said, perhaps it shows some empathy or whatever, but we know um, in the course of this conversation that there was talk about trying to bring about peace talks with the Cainahans, trying to broker some sort of a peace in the gangland feud. 
Yes, so and this is another really interesting aspect. We had heard rumours. I mean, even back when we were reporting this live, we had sort of, I think we'd written it, Paul, you know, that there were sort of efforts to try and find a peaceful solution. And one of the, and I mentioned at the start of the, the pod, Nettie, uh, Eddie Hutch. And one of the things that was that Jerry Hutch said in this bugged conversation was if the you know Jonathan Dodo was talking about how big the Kenyans are and he said you know they're they're an effing army they're really big and you couldn't really trust them and that sort of stuff and Jerry Hutch sort of started pondering about what would happen and he effectively said the people who murdered Nettie Hutch Jerry Hutch's brother would quote have to go but then he stopped for a minute and he, and he sort of said you know by the same token they would want the, the, the Kenyan side would want the killers of David Byrne, he got his name, he called him Liam Byrne, uh, who is David Byrne's brother who's still alive. He said, you know, the same thing would have to happen to the killers of Liam Byrne. So it was, I, I, I just sort of, when I was listening to this, I sort of envisaged a sort of Mexican standoff where they agree to have the killers of Eddie Hutch killed and then they agree to have the killers of David Byrne killed. So you could see that Hutch was weighing up in, in his mind about what price would we have to pay for there to be a peace deal. So it really does give an insight. He obviously didn't realize he was being surveilled and listened. So it gives an insight into his thinking. Yeah, I think the quote is that the individuals who, who, who murdered Eddie Hutch, his brother, would have to go. I think that's the quote, would have to go. Um, it's very interesting to hear. Uh, this is an alleged uh, conversation between Jerry Hutch and Jonathan Dowdo, but it's very interesting to hear those words Um on a tape, I would imagine, and quite chilling. Um, the context of would have to go. You know, look, we we know what came to pass in the feud. We know eighteen people were murdered in total. The vast majority of them, sixteen of them, um, were were carried out by the Kinhans. Uh, but it was a ruthless feud, um, and, and and both sides were were very actively involved. I'll tell you what what struck me at it. Jerry Hutch, for as long as I've been a reporter down here, uh, when he was when he was known as the monk, really before he was named he's only been really named in maybe the last decade or so um there was always this aura about jerry hutch that he was a, a, a an arch planner that he, that he overthought everything he planned everything down to the, the, the crossed every t and dotted every i and you could see that it was interesting to hear his brain oh you could almost hear his brain working things out as if he was working things out in his mind going okay What's the corollary risk? What's the effect of this? We do this, what happens then? And you can see the, the, the you know, he seems to plan everything and consider everything and think about everything. Yeah, and I mean, just going back to you, we were talking about, you know, um, that Jerry Hutch was saying that, that even the people involved in the Regency don't know what happened. I mean, it's fascinating, the conversation between the two men in that they're discussing how nobody knows uh, and I'll, I'll just read out the quotes, uh, you know, because it shows you the mindset of both men, as you've said, the the, the mindset of Jerry Hutch. Um, Dowdall says, the newspapers don't have a effing clue about the Regency. He says, I don't think the police know what is being portrayed in the paper. And then Mr. Hutch says uh, that they don't know. And sure, the F6 people don't even know. No one effing knows. Um, the people that were there themselves don't know. He says, it's all speculation and looking at snaps. The cops are going around like headless chickens, as I said, we've mentioned. So, I mean, this is two individuals talking at length uh, about how nobody knows what really happened that day. I imagine some inference may be drawn in that by the prosecution and, and be challenged by the defence, but we haven't come to that yet. Yeah, although Jerry Hutch did say one thing, which I, I think we, I was sort of happy about. He did say, what you, what you read in the papers, they are not far wrong. Now, 
he didn't spec he didn't you know go into detail about that but he did there was an acknowledgement that you know there's been a lot of stories about the about the whole I'm talking about the Ken and Hutch feud basically and everything about the Regency and afterwards and everything so I think there was a grudging all right you know in some elements because he did say other words you know he did say that the papers don't know anything about this but he did say you know they're not far wrong in other aspects so, yeah no it was it, it, it was it was very interesting so just later on so the, there were there was morning evidence and there was afternoon evidence there was some quite uh i know we're de- dealing with a murder trial but there were some relatively uh, funny aspects they started talking about they started talking about this English singer, and it was like, you know, when you're having a conversation with someone, you can't remember the name. They're going, oh, what's and Jonathan Dowdell was talking about her, and he was going, oh, I can't remember her name. And Jerry Hutch made a few suggestions. And anyway, eventually they hit on Adele, the English singer, talking about, you know, how good she was. But then they started talking about an Irish singer, a Dubliner, and going, and, and Dowdell was doing the same thing. Oh, what's her name? What's her name? Oh, God, I can't remember. And eventually they just, he hit on that it was Amel de May, and he spoke. I you, now you know there'll be quotes tomorrow about how common she was, but when you listen to it, you know he's what I took from it was from the whole conversation. He mentioned working class an awful lot of times, and you could see that Dowdell is fiercely proud of being a working class man, and I think that he was fiercely proud of Imelda May being a working class singer. So I just thought it was very very interesting there. Yeah, it shows a level of camaraderie between these two individuals on the tape, you know, that they're having quite a lighthearted uh, banter conversation as well, doesn't it? Um, I mean, I think I think later, uh, or at one stage, uh, Dowdall says to, to, to Jerry Hutch, I know you trust me, or I know you bleed and trust me, or something like that. Um, again, inferences, I assume, would be drawn from that. I mean, you have the... Jonathan Dowdall allegedly driving Jerry Hutch up to this location. There's a level of trust and camaraderie between these two people, um, which which is very interesting. You're right, Paul. That's one of the, and again, this is, I, I don't do opinions, but I'm going to give you my analysis of it. You could see, look, I'll put it this way. Jerry Hutch was not in a car with a taxi driver and saying, you're working late tonight. You could see that there was a bond between them because you know when you're you know when you're talking to somebody and you're close to them, the barriers are down, and you could see that there was a very strong link. No, and I look, I've been I've been monitoring your copy and I've been monitoring all this stuff, and I was quite struck. You could see from from my perspective, from me listening to it, I thought that there was a very strong friendship there, and you know, well, obviously we know that Mister Dowdall is going to be given evidence in this trial later. So that'll be that'll be blockbuster, but just it struck me that they were more than acquaintances and more than friends. They were very, very, very strong friends. Just by because you know, just how by how open Jerry Hutch was being with Jonathan Dowdall. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, this is a very personal conversation. I mean, uh, just to mention um, again some quotes here that I'm I'm reading. Um, Hutch is talking about the potential uh, peace deal that he's trying to broker. Um, and and this is in the context of 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 them going up north, um, and Jonathan Dowdell is basically saying, "How can you trust these people? And don't get complacent or relaxed. Um, it could be game over for your whole effing family." Um, and Mister Hutch replies, "I know you have to be careful with these explosive <laughs> and their capabilities." And and Dowdell saying, "There's too many of them, and the Kinnahans are a big army. It's a very 
close personal conversation between the two of them about an issue that would have been quite raw for Jerry Hutch. Um, the murder of his brother having only happened, um, you know, and with him him himself being a major target uh, of the Kinahan cartel. And he's having this conversation allegedly with Jonathan Dowdall in the, in the car. Yes, and I had, I did have, look, everybody copes with grief differently, but I did have to remind myself that Eddie Hutch had been murdered shortly before this. I'm not saying he was blasé. As I'm saying, look, everybody deals with it, but, you know, he was, he's a, he was a very calm, uh, very, very calm, and he, he rarely, I, I don't think he ever really got animated in the whole conversation, even when he was talking about, as you say, people coming for his family or, you know, the threats of, from the Guineans and stuff. So he's a very, very calm man. I'll, I'll say that. It's fascinating. And, and I imagine this is only half, not even, how much was heard today? How many hours worth or how many minutes worth? Uh, if, if I'm saying four hours, maybe it started at 11, finished at one, two, I'd say three and a bit hours, I'd say. So there's a good long bit to go. We, there, there was some stuff in the afternoon, maybe, maybe we'll talk about that. Will, William Johnson, the former head of the uh, National Surveillance Unit, he gave some evidence. Now, he was he had already been taken to the stand, so he was already sworn in. He was just quizzed, basically, about, I mean, we did speak about this earlier, about the, the policy document about, you know, destroying logs uh, and surveillance logs and that one sort of thing and he was pressed and this is clearly going to be a very big issue he was pressed about is it do is there in this document policy document is there a provision for nsu operations involved in going over the border in other words is there a protocol for what happens for when somebody is being surveilled by the nsu and they go over the border because that's obviously a different jurisdiction we know that this is going to be a massive Legal argument. We know that you know that the defence objects to this. And Mr. Johnson, who's been retired, I think three years, kept on saying there was no surveillance in the north. The PS and I were involved in surveillance, but he several times, and I think at one stage, you know, it was a bit of a, you know, it was hard as is his job. There was hard cross examination, hard questioning by uh, Brendan Graham and it won't, you know, uh, Mr. Justice Tara Burns, the presiding judge, intervened at the end and said, you know, he's made his point basically. But Mr. Johnson kept on saying there was no surveillance by the NSU in Northern Ireland. So, you know, we'll, we'll see what becomes of that. I should just note that at, at, this, at this point that the defence have not argued one way or another as to whether uh, they are saying that that's Jerry Hutch in the vehicle. I mean, they haven't uh, objected to it being um, their client on the tapes. It seems primarily at the moment their argument is about the legality of how that tape was acquired, uh, as we're as we're talking about when when this vehicle went into Northern Ireland and whether the whether the guards were actually uh, listening in at that point. Uh, their whole case at the moment seems to be if he were surveilling Jerry Hutch while he was in the north in this vehicle, then that was illegal. Yes, and I mean, maybe it probably does bear reiterating again, as you say, that defence haven't made any comment on this. It's the state's case that the two men in the car are Jerry, are Jerry Hutch and Jonathan Dowdall, and we've just, you know, it's very cumbersome to say it every time, so we're going on that basis, but it's up for the judges and they will decide, so, you know, that's probably the best way, way of dealing with that. But there, yes, so there was, after uh, Mr Johnson gave evidence, we did hear more tapes, and it was... It was more of or of the uh, conversation. But I thought there were a couple of interesting points. There was a man called uh, 
Jonathan Dowdle brought up the subject of a man called Bomber Kavanagh. Now, we could talk about what the evidence or the, the conversation was about Bomber Kavanagh, but th- Paul, I think you might be well placed to explain the significance of Bomber Kavanagh. Yeah, well, I mean, we could talk about him uh, extensively, but just to sum it up, uh, Thomas Bomber Kavanagh uh, was a major, major figure in the Kinahan cartel. Uh, he was named in the High Court uh, by, by Senior Gardaí as being at the top of the tree of the Kinahan cartel. Uh, he's married to a sister of Liam Byrne, um, and, and Dave, sorry, a sister of David Byrne as well, who was shot dead in the Regency Hotel. Um, he's pri- primarily based in the UK, though he is an Irish national, and, and was considered a major, major gangster. But he's currently serving a 21-year sentence now in prison in the UK uh, for his role in conspiring to import um, millions of pounds worth of drugs uh, into the UK. He was considered to be a major importer of drugs into the UK and Ireland and firearms as well for the Kinahan cartel. So he was a major, major, uh, is a major, major figure within the Kinahan cartel, but he's currently behind bars. Okay, and so the context of this, the context for the evidence in this was uh, at one stage in the public conversation, the man in the state legislature, was Jonathan Dowdall, said to Jerry Hutch, your man, Bomber, is getting, getting lashed out of it. And Jerry Hutch said, what? He said, Bomber Cabinet is getting lashed out of it. And then he went on to talk about, and people will remember this, after the David Byrne murder, there was a massive funeral for him. It was in, it was in Dublin, it's at Maris Church, I think, on Mead Street. And if you recall, all the Kinnan supporters, and Daniel Kinnan was there, Freddie Thompson, who's currently in jail, Bomber Cavanaugh was there. And they all wore sunglasses and they all wore blue. That was because David Byrne was a Chelsea fan, so they wore blue shirts and blue ties, you know, all that sort of stuff. But there was significant... And, you know, he picked Bomber Cavanagh, but it could have been about Kennan, it could have been Freddie Thompson, it could have been anybody. There was significant media discourse and political discourse about who the hell do these people are? Because they did look, you know, as if they were putting it up to the state, the way they dressed, the way they took over the whole place. You know, the guards had to seal off streets and everything. And, there were, you know, I mean, I was up in the air at the time. Uh, we, we, but there was significant media coverage. We flew around. There were... You know, there was a big cortege. I think there were seven or eight limousines involved. And it was a, a spectacle. It was a real gangland spectacle. And then, so Jonathan Doddle was quite scathing of them. He said, that, you see them with all their sunglasses and stuff. So that's what I said. They were all wearing sunglasses. And, you know, and he just said, you know, and Jerry Hodge said, ah, it's ridiculous. But Jonathan Doddle said something really interesting. He said, you know who does that? In other words, act the way they did. He said, you know who does that? People who aren't gangsters. So he seemed for me to be quite contemptuous. The whole sense that I got from, from it was that he was basically saying that the Kinnahans and, and the Burns and, and everybody are playing at being gangsters. They're playing to the crowd and it looks really stupid. And, you know, es- essentially what he was saying was that, you know, serious criminals, they don't go for the, the limelight and they shy away from the media because the, the Kinnahans and the Burns, they effectively took over that part of Dublin and there was a massive media spectacle. So he was, so Dowdle was quite scathing of it and... Uh, said it was ridiculous. Whatever about the spectacle, the Kinnahans certainly proved their um, their abilities to to be quite ruthless in the days that followed that funeral. As we know, um, I think uh, our photographer, a photographer that we that we know, took a, a very um, well known picture now of of Bomber Kavanagh with Daniel Kinnahan. I think that was, um, was the day after the Regency um, um, to, together meeting together. Uh, and they were together as well uh, at that funeral. And then we know, we know three days after the Regency attack uh, was the shooting of Eddie Hutch. Uh, and what followed from that were 15 further murders. Um, so it was a ruthless campaign by the Guinnahans. So I, I suppose 
whatever Jonathan Dowdo's opinion about their spectacle and their show that day, um, they certainly didn't hold back in terms of their actions, the Kinnahans, I mean. Yeah, no, no, definitely. So, but it just, I, I, look, I thought it was an interesting mindset. There was another, and again, look, you know, it's a conversation these two men had for, we heard, three hours worth. It, it meanders about. So Jonathan Dowdall brought up a thing. He, he turned around to Jerry Hutch, if it is either of those men. He turned around to him and said, you see all these ones in the south of their city? They're all going. They're all supporting. All the young ones are supporting Team Monk. And Mr. Hutch said, the what? And he goes, Team Monk. Uh, so basically, <laughs> I mean, there was, and I remember this at the time, there were T-shirts and all about, I'm Team Hutch. And then there were others going, I'm Team uh, Regency, uh, that, Team yeah. Kenan. But Jerry Hutch said a very interesting thing. And, it, you know, I thought this is the me- measure of the man. You know, because there were people who were supporting Team Hutch. He said Team Monk, but it was Team Hutch. And Jerry Hutch said, I wouldn't be into that because I don't think it's nice to see any something he used a bad, bad word, dead, right? So you can see there was a sort of level of empathy or humanity there that, you know, bad things are happening. And bad things are happening for everybody. And he and the person alleged to be Jerry Hutch certainly wasn't in to glorifying uh, what was going on at all. No, and we know, I suppose, to a certain extent that Jerry Hutch's life became hell uh, in in the months that followed we know he eventually left ireland and and lived abroad and has done so had done so up until his extradition uh, last year um so i mean at this point he seems quite comfortable on the tape uh, you know going up north with Jonathan Dowdall attempting to broker some sort of peace allegedly um but it's fascinating what happened as we said we, we could talk for months about it but but what ha- what happened in the weeks that followed that? Yeah, and I'll just talk. Uh, there's another thing that there was. There were so many things. There was another thing that had come to mind. He did speak about how dangerous the Kenyans were, and he did say they would put a five hundred thousand euro bounty on you. Right now, I think that's a reference to himself because we had this story that there was a half a million euro bounty from the Kenyans for Jerry Hutch immediately after he was the Kenyan. Jerry Hutch was the Kenyans top target. So you could see, look, he's been empathetic on one level, but then at the very next breath, he's saying how dangerous they are and that, that they're, they're, they're willing to spend half a million quid to get him killed. So, you know, it was a, it was a very frank and very detailed conversation. I thought, and then finally, I know we've been on a bit, but finally it turned to politics. You'll remember this conversation happened on the 7th of March. On the 26th of February, so a week and a bit earlier, there was a general election in the Republican. It was the rise of Sinn Féin. Uh, uh, and the two men started talking about this. Obviously, uh, uh, Jonathan Dowdell was a former Sinn Féin councillor at the time. So both men were given their analysis. And Jonathan Dowdell, and they were listening to Mary Wilson on RT Radio. And it was, you can see she said it was five, half... Uh, just after half past five. So they started, Mary Wilson was talking to Jerry Murphy, a professor in DCU about politics, about who could do what. And now that was quite garbled because it was, you could hear bits because it was a recording of, of the radio. But, you know, Jerry Hutch and Dowdell were having their own conversations about it. And it was basically, Dowdell was going, well, you know, Sinn Féin are getting hockey because they're not going into government. But they actually said they don't want to go into government as a minor party. And he brought up what happened to Labour. So if you think about what happened to Labour in 2010, 2011, they went in with Fine Gael, and it wasn't the big party that got hockeyed, he said, got bollocks. It wasn't the big party that got bollocks. It's always the small party. So he was sort of saying, they'd be mad not to go in the coalition, but they've got to do it as equals and not go in as the smaller party. And there was a, a bit of to and fro, and there was one interesting thing that Jerry Hutch said. He was talking about, you know, 
any political party has to go in the government and it has to be realistic. And he just said that most people don't have the cop on to realize that it's totally different campaigning to governing. So what you can say in your, when you're going for your manifesto is totally different to what happens in real life. And he said most people don't have the cop to realize that. So just at 10 to 4, Miss Justice Burns called an end of the day's proceedings. So we still have at least, I'd say, probably seven hours of recordings to listen to. So it, it'll be really, really interesting. Yeah, it's been fascinating so far. I, I do wonder, like, again, it's not for us to com- comment necessarily, but there, I mean, I have seen comments online from people kind of wondering, oh, what's the point of all this? Because it seems out of context, like a lot of rambling conversation. But it's up to the judges to decide, but also the prosecution will contextualize some of this and, and make inferences from some of it. I mean, there's clearly information discussed between the two men in this tape. Um, and it, it's the it's the timing of, of when they say it uh, and what they know when, I think, is what's interesting, uh, particularly the conversation about the three yokes two days before, two days before the three yokes are actually seized. Um, I think that's going to be very important in terms of the state's case that these two people on the tape know a lot of information that only maybe a small number of people at that point in time really should have known. Yeah, and you know, as ever in any case like this, there may be bits of evidence that completely fly over us that we are sitting there reporting and it just we don't see the significance at all. And you only see the significance in the what's called the closing speech. So when Sean Galal, Sean Galan, senior counsel for the state, stands up and he makes his closing speech or his closing submission to the three judges and he ties everything together and he builds a picture and it's his so he takes every bit of evidence that he believes is relevant and puts it all together and hits the judges with it. By the same token, Mr Brendan Graham for Jerry Hutch, he will do the same. Uh, he will have the last word. But so, you know, we can't, and people lead, risk listening or watching go, I don't see the point of this. It's it's all about building, uh, building, building bricks for the final closing submissions and for the final closing speeches. Absolutely. So we've many more hours left to go. We do. Okay, well, thanks very much for listening uh, to, to our special podcast. Um, as you can see, there's a lot to discuss and we think there's going to be even more to discuss in the days to come. So we hope you keep listening and thanks very much. Thank you for listening to Shattered Lives. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, feel free to listen to our back catalogue. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your pods. This series is produced by Kieran Bradley and is a production for Reach.